Morning. Uh, by now, you should already have your Bibles open to, or app, open to Luke chapter 9. If you don't, though, I'd invite you to turn there now. Um, our passage this morning is relatively simple and straightforward. It is three encounters, three short encounters that Jesus has with potential disciples. One man approaches Jesus, two approach him, but all have a conversation with Jesus about what it means to follow him. Now, following Jesus is a synonym for being a disciple of Jesus. It requires us to, or requires a person to come to him in repentance and faith, to learn from him, to go where he directs, and to participate in his mission. That's going to be important later on, so I'm going to repeat that again. Being a, dis a follower of Jesus is a synonym for being a disciple of Jesus. It means coming to him in repentance and faith. It means learning from him. It means going where he directs, and it means participating in his mission. And you may have caught it when Brian was reading the text just a moment ago that we know nothing about these guys. They're almost irrelevant. Uh, he just refers to him as a man and another and another. We know nothing about the men themselves, and we know nothing about their response to what Jesus says. Now, Matthew has a parallel account, um, and he gives us just a smidge more detail about these guys. But really, these guys are not the point. By omitting information about them, what Luke is doing here is he's pointing our attention to what Jesus says. He's pointing our attention to the corrections that Jesus makes in these men's lives. And what Jesus says are corrections. We'll see that as we go through the text. Each of these men approach Jesus with a different error or misconception as to what it means to follow Jesus. And Jesus lovingly corrects them. These errors that these men hold are common. They are errors that still exist today and they are errors that even those of us who've been following Jesus for a while can find ourselves succumbing to as we seek to follow the Lord. So today we're going to spend some time just looking at each encounter and unpacking them and seeing what we can learn as we go. My outline for those of you who are taking notes is pretty simple. First and foremost, we are going to spend just a minute or two looking at the bigger context. I hate jumping into a passage of scripture without situating it in the broader context of redemptive history, so we're going to do that. And then following that, we're going to look at each of those three encounters. And in the first encounter, which is verses 57 to 58, there we are going to see Jesus explain the cost of following him, the cost of following him. The second encounter is verses 59 to 60, and there we will see Jesus explain the priority of following him the priority of following him. And then we will look at the third encounter, which is verses 61 and 62, and there we'll see the necessary commitment to following Jesus, the necessary commitment to following Jesus. And then we'll end, of course, seeking to apply this to our lives. So that's the outline, some context, the cost of following Jesus, the priority of following Jesus, and the necessary commitment to following Jesus with some application. Now, as we do this, let's go to God in prayer and ask for his grace. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to go through your word together. We thank you for the opportunity to just 
be edified in our understanding of what it means to follow you. Following you is, following our Savior is the most important thing in the world. It is the most consequential thing that we will ever do or not do. And we just I pray, Lord, that you would use this time this morning to open our eyes to understand what it means to follow your son, what it means to listen and learn and obey from him, obey him. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless our time this morning, bless us all, that we might be good soil as we, as we listen to these words and that we be edified and encouraged as we go. And I ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> I love that amen. I really do. All right. Um, so a little bit of context. Um, we're going to have you look just a couple of verses earlier in chapter 9, beginning in verse 51 beginning in verse 51, and I'm going to read verses 51 to 56 really fast. Verse 51 starts with, when the days drew, new, drew near for him to be taken up, he, Jesus, set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because he set his face towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. So, yeah, it's funny. <laughs> These guys have guts, don't they? Immediately after this, this, this unfortunate Samaritan episode, Jesus leaves the village. He's heading towards Jerusalem, and as he's going, he is collecting disciples. That's where he encounters these guys is sort of randomly, not in God's sovereignty, but from a human perspective, randomly on the road towards Jerusalem. But the verse that I really want to call your attention to for context is verse 51. Verse 51 is actually a really critical verse for the book of Luke. Luke's book is largely structured around Jesus's journey to Jerusalem and to the cross. Everything, in one sense, if you were dividing up the book of Luke, everything prior to chapter 9, verse 51, is in one sense a prologue. And you get to verse 51, the time is near, Jesus is on his way to the cross, and much of the rest of Luke is really just the story of Jesus getting there. Luke is fundamentally the story of Jesus going to Jerusalem, going to the cross, and being lifted up. And in this verse, in verse 51, we, we read that Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem. Luke tells us that Jesus knows that his time is near, and so our Lord is resolved to go where he has been directed. He is resolved to go to the cross. This is, after all, the reason he came to the earth in the first place. He took on flesh in the first place to die. It was the will of the triune God that the Son would take on flesh to serve as a substitute for all those that the Father would give him. And the culmination of that, the chief substitutionary act that he would perform is his death on the cross for us. And so when the time came, verse 51 tells us that he was resolved. He set his heart to go and die. Now, it's also important, I think, though, for our text that we recognize that the cross is not the end of Jesus's work. It's not the end of Jesus's work. His work didn't stop there. It doesn't stop there, the cross secured a perfect and unimaginably glorious salvation for all that the Father would give him. 
But Jesus' mission isn't done until every one of those elect stand before the Father on the final day, conformed to the image of his Son. That's Jesus' mission. That's the grand mission that he began in his incarnation, and it is the mission that he is executing right now at the right hand of the Father. He is building up his church both in terms of numbers and in holiness. And he is carrying out that mission right now by and through the very people that he is saving. By and through the very people he is saving. And so it shouldn't be surprising that as Jesus is looking to the cross himself, as he is resolved to go and die on our behalf, that he is collecting disciples as he goes. That as he goes, he is demanding, not asking, but ordering men to give up everything and to follow him. And again, that's exactly what we see in our passage. We see Jesus resolved to go to the cross, and we see him collecting disciples as he goes. And he still is. He still is. I think it's, I think it's really important if we're going to understand the relevance of this passage for our lives, that we understand that when a person puts their faith in Jesus, when a person professes to believe in Jesus, they are also signing up to be his disciple. Following Jesus is not just something that happened 2,000 years ago. Yes, it happened more literally 2,000 years ago, but it is still something that happens today. And sometimes I, I fear that the way we talk about Jesus, the way we conceive of Christianity, the way we, we think about our salvation, that we miss this point. Sometimes we, we talk about our faith as if Christianity was some sort of cosmic benefit package. You know, insert the slot of faith, pull the lever, and get a bunch of benefits. Believe in Jesus, and here's all the great things that you get. And don't get me wrong, please don't get me wrong. There are incalculable blessings for everyone who believes in Jesus. But Christianity isn't merely a transaction. It's not merely a transaction. Jesus demands that everyone who would come to him for salvation also follow him. Coming to Jesus, repenting, and putting your faith in Jesus is the beginning of your following him. Or put another way, every man who would come, or every person who would come to Jesus as Savior will also, must also, embrace him as master. Every single person who would come to Jesus as Savior must also embrace him as master. And if someone doesn't do the second bit, it most likely indicates that they probably haven't done the first bit. All true believers are Ultra believers in Jesus are disciples of Jesus, and our master in this passage is going to teach us three invaluable things about what it means to follow him. And the point I really want to emphasize here is obviously if you are here today and you have nothing to do with Jesus, you're not, you don't name his name, you don't have faith in him, you're here because you were you know, dragged here or something along those lines, or you're watching later with someone else, this passage is absolutely relevant to you. But for those of us who have followed Jesus for years, or shorter periods of time, or decades, this passage is just as relevant for us as well. We too are disciples of Jesus. We too are subject to the errors that these men made. So we, we need to learn from them, and to do that, we're going to look at each of these encounters in turn. And the first one is in verses 57 to 58. It's our first short encounter, 
And there we are going to see Jesus talk about the cost of following him. I'm going to read that for you. He says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So the scene is simple. Some guy approaches Jesus. In Matthew's account, we do know that this man is a scribe. So someone who is going to be generally learned in the scriptures and the theological debates of the time. And he starts off strong, doesn't he? I will follow you wherever you go. Sounds good. For those of us who know how the story ends, where Jesus is going, who know just how miserable the lives of the apostles ended up being, this seems like it's a pretty bold profession, doesn't it? But it's likely not. See, in Jesus' day, there was a very common misconception. The idea of what the Messiah was here to do was greatly muddled in Jesus' day. Later on in Luke chapter 19, verse 11, as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, we read that he, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem, and here's the important part, because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. There's a misconception in Jesus' day as to what exactly the Messiah was going to do. And this explains uh, whenever you see Jesus have a, a really warm welcome by people who would reject him later. As he's going into Jerusalem, people are laying palm branches on the ground and shouting out, Hosea, or Hosanna. They're shouting out, Hosanna. The same people who would later cry out for him to be crucified and Barabbas released to them instead. And the reason for the warm welcome and the abrupt turn later is they had a completely wrong view of what the Messiah was there to do. They viewed the Messiah as someone who was going to show up and liberate Israel from Roman rule. They were going to embark on a unification of the kingdom, an expansion of Israel. Israel would go from some tiny backwater country to the capital of the world. Israel would be unified, protected, wealthy, happy. They had a very eschatological view of what the Messiah would do. And of course, of course, this expectation gets hopelessly dashed when Jesus is arrested and tried and crucified. But until that happened, there were many who had this view of the Messiah who came to follow Jesus under these pretenses. And this man in our story appears to be one of them. And to a certain extent, this is reasonable. If you, if you had this man's conception of what the Messiah was here to do, you probably would do the same thing. This, this man is attempting to do uh, what we probably have all joked about doing, going back in time and investing in Apple or Microsoft or something along those lines, right? This man is attempting to get in at the ground floor at something great. If Jesus is the Messiah that he thinks he is and he is going to restore the kingdom and it's going to be this glorious thing, you're going to want to get in the ground floor too. The best position is the guy who got in early with Jesus. This man had an earthly version of the Messiah in mind, and it seems that the earthly benefits of the Messiah is what he was aiming at. And so Jesus corrects that misunderstanding, that misconception, and he responds by basically saying, I'm homeless. I'm homeless. I've got nowhere to lay my head. And in doing so, Jesus is really doing two things. He is telling the man that the mission that Jesus is on is not the mission the man thinks it is. And second, 
that following Jesus is not going to result in what the man thinks it does. He's telling the guy that the mission that Jesus is on is not what he thinks it is, and second, that following Jesus is not going to result in what he hopes it will. And again, this man's error is twofold. He misunderstands Jesus' mission, and therefore, relatedly, he misunderstands what it means to follow Jesus. He thinks that he is approaching the man who is going to enter into Jerusalem as a conquering king. He thinks he is approaching the man who is going to enter into Jerusalem and to be clothed with fine apparel and seated on a throne. He thinks he's following a man who is entering Jerusalem to be served and to begin a glorious and peaceful reign over a unified and protected Israel. And he thinks that by serving this Messiah, he'll be afforded a place of glory, a place of privilege, perhaps even a place of wealth, which is probably why Jesus' answer to him is, I don't even have a place to sleep. I don't have the basic luxury that just about everyone else has. Jesus is, of course, not going to Jerusalem as a conquering king. He does not go to be clothed in fine apparel. He does not go to be served. Eventually, those things are true. He will return to Jerusalem as a conquering king, except that it will be the new Jerusalem. He will be clothed in the finest of apparel, except it will be the splendor of his holiness. And he will be served in Jerusalem, but it will be by the redeemed and the redeemed alone in a new heavens and a new earth. But at this moment in time, Jesus goes to Jerusalem to suffer, to serve, to die. This man just fundamentally misunderstood what Jesus was here to do. And since he missed that, he fundamentally misunderstood what it meant to follow Jesus. Following Jesus meant following him to his death. It didn't mean following a conquering lion. It meant following a sacrificial lamb. And after Jesus died and was raised, it meant going out into the world and proclaiming the resurrection of that lamb and getting kicked in the teeth daily for it. It meant suffering himself. It means taking up his own cross as he did so. Jesus had nowhere to lay his head, and so too will those who follow him have nowhere to lay theirs. That is the point that Jesus makes in his response to this man attempting to clear up these misunderstandings. In other words, Jesus is saying that there is a cost to following him. Following Jesus is not the path that you want to take if your chief concern is this life. A few verses earlier in chapter 9, starting in verse 23, in a similar conversation, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Now, I hope I don't have to say it, but take up your cross isn't exactly a happy phrase. Whoever loses his life for my sake definitely isn't health and wealth and prosperity and the other things that are falsely taught today. Following Jesus involves cost. He made it clear in 20, verses 23 and following. He makes it clear here. Now, don't get me wrong, following Jesus is the greatest thing in the world. In Matthew uh, chapter 13, verse 44, he compares it to a treasure. 
The kingdom of heaven, he says, is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Following Jesus is absolutely worth every sacrifice, every ounce of suffering, every loss. But following Jesus will require sacrifice, it will require suffering, and it will require loss. In Philippians 3.8, Paul affirms both truths, uh, both truths, truths, that following Jesus will require suffering, requires cost, and then that cost is infinitely worth it. It says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. It's not an understatement to say that following Jesus requires you to give up everything. Everything. And Jesus wanted the scribe to know it, and he wants us to know it as well. Now, that may, that may seem counterintuitive, right? I mean, if you're, if you're wanting to get disciples, why talk about cost at all? Why not let this guy go on his merry way with the wrong conception of what it means to follow Jesus? Why not make Jesus seem just extra fun or relatable or, or whatever else? Surely he'd get more disciples that way, right? And that is, after all, the strategy that many, most American churches make in their evangelism, convincing people that Jesus is how you live your best life now. And you get good numbers that way, but you get a, a bunch of deceived, confused people. Now, Jesus doesn't let this guy have his delusions. He doesn't want him to join with his misunderstandings intact. If he did, Jesus would gain someone following him around, but he would not gain someone following him. He would gain a disciple in name only. So Jesus does correct this man. His goal is not to get more people who claim to be disciples. His goal is to get more actual disciples. Jesus corrects the scribe's misunderstanding and makes it clear that following Jesus will require, does still require, a radical commitment to Jesus. To follow Jesus requires us to do what Paul said in Philippians, to look at our sin-scarred, wrath-deserving lives and our broken world and our temporary possessions which we foolishly idolize and, and, to, and, to, and to be willing to give them all up, to say, no, they are rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. That is what it means to follow Jesus. That is what we are called to, everyone who would name the name of Christ. Now, if you're, if you're sitting here thinking or watching this later and thinking, this guy's wrong. I don't have to make some, some radical commitment to following Jesus. I can just... Live my life and add Jesus to it. If anyone is thinking that, I promise you, you're wrong. You're wrong. You are dead wrong. Anyone who feels that way is like this scribe. You have a delusional view of what it means to follow Jesus. But praise be to God that 2,000 years ago, Jesus cared enough to have this interaction with this man that we also might benefit from this experience so that we can learn the same lesson. Following Jesus is something that we do with our whole heart and our whole life, or not at all. 
And that is what the Lord would have us learn from this first encounter. Which brings us to our second encounter in verses 59 to 60. And here we're going to see another misconception, another wrong view of what it means to follow Jesus. This time, though, the issue is over the priority of following Jesus, the priority of following Jesus. In verse 59, we read, to another, he said, follow me. But he, this, this man, said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, this encounter is unique of the three. This is the one person that Jesus approaches. The other two approached him. And this may also be the happiest of the three encounters. In Matthew's account, he actually refers to this man as a disciple, which I think is a pretty strong hint that this guy probably responded favorably. And if it helps, the tradition of the church is that this guy did respond favorably. However, if this man did ultimately follow Jesus, he did not do so immediately. Rather than saying, yes, Lord, I will follow you to Jesus' command, and make no mistake, follow me is not a suggestion, it is a command. Instead, he asks permission to go and bury his father. Now, on the surface, that's not a bad thing. In fact, it's, it's quite a good thing. Respect for one's parents is a biblical requirement, and to be apathetic to what happens to the dead body of your parent is a pretty severe sign of disrespect. And just to, to beat that horse a little bit, imagine you get a phone call and you know, you're informed that one of your parents has died of old age. And you say thank you and you hang up. You don't care to ask where it was. You don't care to ask when the services might be. You don't care to ask um, uh, whether or not you need to help uh, financially or otherwise with a memorial service. You don't think to ask, is the body going to be buried in our family plot, cremated, tossed in a ditch? You don't care. Now, obviously, the person who feels that way would be clearly disrespectful to their parents, clearly disrespectful. So being, being concerned about what happens and burying one's father is not a bad thing by any stretch. This man appears to be sincerely interested in paying respect to his father. His heart seems to be in a good place in that respect. But while his heart might be in a good place, his priorities are not. His priorities were not. And that's what Jesus tells him in his response. Let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom. Now, Jesus' words are a play on words. Uh, let the dead go bury their own dead is referring to the spiritually dead burying the physically dead. Jesus is essentially telling this guy, let the broken and fallen world go run itself. As for you... Go do the more important thing. Go do the higher and better thing. Come join me on my mission. I think we see from this that the, the mission of Jesus is literally the most important thing in the world. Jesus is here, after all, to solve mankind's ultimate problem, the spiritual deadness of man, death itself, the penalty for sin, which is an eternity of facing the wrath of God. Fixing that is what is really important. Whatever other problems that we may face in life, no matter how severe or abundant, 
Being spiritually dead and under the wrath of God is by far the most important problem that anyone can ever face. And what Jesus is doing then on the road to the cross and now seated at the right hand of God and working through his body is the most important thing in the world. His mission is the most important thing in the world, which makes following Jesus also the most important thing in the world. To follow Jesus or not to follow Jesus is the most consequential decision that someone will ever make. And there is nothing, and I mean nothing, that should get in the way of us following Jesus, obeying the call to follow Jesus. And yet, that's what this man did. He had his priorities wrong. Paying, it, paying respects to his father was not bad. It was good. But the real priority is Jesus himself. The real priority is Jesus' mission. The real priority is the kingdom. And that is what Jesus tells him to focus on. What this man did is what I think so many of us do, what I find myself doing. We let not necessarily what is bad, but what is good choke out what is most important. I think one of the hardest struggles in the Christian life, I don't know if you'd agree, I hope you do, is not necessarily avoiding the bad thing. That is hard. But harder still is not letting good things have disproportionate places in our hearts, in our affections, and in our time. Good things can be a snare to us. A simple and perhaps silly example is family. Family is good. Today is Father's Day. I would heartily say every man here who has a family, you should be taking care of them. Absolutely. Full stop. We should not neglect our families. But if I were to stand up here and say, you know what, the Kennys have made a decision. I am going to fulfill my obligation to take care of my family, and we're going to stop attending church on Sundays. Instead, instead, we're going to go to brunch every Sunday morning, and I'm just going to be present with my family. I'm just going to focus on them and, and, and make sure their needs are met and understanding you know, how they're doing, and we're just going to, we're going to be a family together. I, I've let a good thing in that moment become a very, very bad thing for me. I let a good thing become an idol, become a snare. The priority of our lives, Jesus says here, must be following Jesus. Must be following Jesus. Which brings us to our third encounter, our third encounter. Um, and this is the necessary commitment to following Jesus, the necessary commitment to following Jesus. Now, as we approach this, this third encounter, I think it is fair to say that there is a fair bit of overlap with number two. Um, it's probably why Matthew omits this third encounter from his account of the story. Um, I think you could probably get a lot of what I'm gonna say next out of the second encounter if you, if you really wanted to. Um, and really, kind of just backing up even further, these are all really rapid fire stories. And I think the reason why that Luke just sort of lays them out quick, why Matthew lays them out quick, is because the picture of following Jesus is not really uh, best obtained by looking at each one of these accounts, but it's looking at all of them. All three of these issues, all three of these things together is really what it means to follow Jesus. But even though Matthew omits it, Luke does not. That means it's here for a reason, and I think there are enough differences between the two accounts 
that it's worthwhile for us to dig into it, and so we will. Now, uh, this encounter is verses 61 and 62, and there we read, Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, this encounter is, is probably the most fascinating for me. Jesus does not approach this man. If Jesus had approached this man on the road, hey, you, follow me, I would understand this man's response then. Sure, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me go say goodbye to my family. But Jesus doesn't approach him first. He comes up to Jesus. Jesus, I will follow you, but first let me go say goodbye to my family. That order doesn't really, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. And so I think what's happening here is this man didn't want to go to his family. He held his family in high regard and dear esteem. He didn't want to go to his family and say goodbye unless he knew that Jesus would accept him. I think he had some desire to follow Jesus for whatever reason, whatever motive, but he loved his family and didn't want to give them up unless he had to. I think that's, that's what makes this encounter make sense. And I think this is confirmed by Jesus' response. Jesus' response indicates that let me go say goodbye to my family is not a mere notification to his parents. This is not a, sorry, mom, not home for dinner tonight. This is something deeper, something more significant. Jesus' response warns him against having a divided commitment. Jesus tells him to focus on being his disciple and not, quote, look back. I take it to mean then this man had a certain reluctance in his heart. He wanted to follow Jesus, but he didn't want to leave his life and his family. For him, following Jesus would leave him conflicted. For him, following Jesus is not where his entire heart was at. And I suspect that if he did follow Jesus in that moment, he probably would have done so with some degree of regret. And brothers and sisters, Following Jesus requires all that we are. It requires us to do so wholeheartedly. There is nothing that we should put in front of following Jesus, but more than that, there cannot be anything that we even put in the same zip code of importance. And a simple, oh, I'm sorry, um, and, and for this man, this man uh, his family was what he was conflicted about. He was conflicted about his family. Now, Jesus addresses this sort of in Luke 14, 26. Uh, Luke 14, 26, in that passage, we see a similar situation. We see Jesus being followed by crowds, likely with wrong motives. And so he turns around and he says to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus is not intending to say that we actually should hate our families. This is not license to not love. What he's saying here, though, in a very provocative way, is that being a disciple of Jesus, being a follower of Jesus, requires an absolute commitment, an absolute devotion. Nothing, not even your own life, can get in the way. 
We need to be so dedicated to Jesus, he is saying, that even our closest relationships, even the concern we have for our own life, looks like hate by comparison. Here's an analogy. Over the years, I have been subjected to all sorts of new orientations and training meetings and you know, those sorts of things in, 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 in my work life. And there's always an icebreaker, some sort of get to know you thing, and some of you may have experienced this. And one of them, and I hate all of these by the way, but one of them is tell me five things about yourself. And the idea in this game is that you would list five defining characteristics about your life, such that if you list these five things out, I understand the core of who you are. And you're supposed to list them in priority order. So someone may stand up and say, you know, I'm, I'm a mom first, I'm a wife second, I'm a dedicated cyclist third, I'm a scrapbooker fourth. Somebody else may say I'm a, I'm a husband first, I'm a father second, I'm a college football fan third, you know, whatever. Like you, you list these five things out and they describe who you are. And I think if this man on the road, this third encounter man were to play that game, I think based on what Jesus says to him, he would probably say I'm a follower of Jesus first and then I'm a family man and whatever that looks like afterwards. And I think what Jesus is telling him is that's not the biblical answer. That is not the correct answer. The correct answer is you are a follower of me, and then there are a thousand blank spaces. There are a thousand blank spaces of nothing. And then, and only then, are you a father or a husband or whatever else holds dear to you. You are my follower first, a thousand blank spaces, and then your other things. And if we anyone here thinks that you can be you know, a Christian first, but something else can be in a close second, I think the only biblical response to that is repent. Whatever it is, it's an idol to you. There's nothing that should be in the same zip code of importance to us as following Jesus. In fact, I, I submit to you that the right way to live our life is to have everything matter in relationship to Jesus. My, my, my work ethic at work whether I hate my job or love my job, I work just as hard. Why? Because I don't work for myself. I don't work for the paycheck. I don't work for the joy of doing the job. I work for Jesus. My commitment to my family. I love my wife and kids, but my commitment to them is fundamentally because of Jesus. My, my love for them is, flows in and through Jesus. Tomorrow, my wife could wake up and decide to change her hair color, change her style, change what shows she likes listening to, change what she thinks is funny. She could be a radically different person and my commitment to her shouldn't change one iota. Why? Because my commitment to her is because and in and through Jesus. That is what Jesus says is the guiding ethic of our lives. And brothers and sisters, in case you think I'm making too much of this, please don't miss the language that Jesus uses here. He says that no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Being unfit for the kingdom of God is a bad thing. It's a real bad thing. What we're talking about here is life and death. You know, Lot's wife in Genesis, as they were leading, leaving Sodom, she looked back and died because of it. In the Exodus story, Israel was constantly looking back to their time in Egypt 
Not a single one of them enter the promised land. I've said several times this morning in several different ways that following Jesus isn't, isn't a joke. It isn't something lighthearted. It isn't on par with choosing a career or where to buy a house. It isn't simply a commitment we make. It is the commitment that we make in our lives. And what this third encounter teaches is that Jesus clearly expects this sort of commitment from his followers. Which brings us to the end and how we might apply this in our lives. Now I think if there's anyone here, like I mentioned at the beginning, who does not know Jesus, who does not profess faith in him, I think the application of the sermon is clear and easy. Count the cost, repent, believe, and follow Jesus with your whole heart. But for those of us who name the name of Christ, who would say they believe in Jesus, there are things in this passage that also apply to us as well. And we saw a few of them as we were working through. And it is very possible to commit the errors that these men make, not in a fatal sense, but to let them creep into our walks with Jesus. I think it's critical every believer who comes across this passage, who, who's here today, who's listening to this sermon, understands that no, no one's immune from these sorts of errors. No one's immune from this sort of stuff coming into our walk with Jesus. I think that's at least partly why these encounters were recorded for us. No one's exempt from having to evaluate whether or not our following Jesus is, is in accordance with, with how Jesus demands or whether we're, we're walking in the footsteps of these three men. It's possible after even years of following Jesus to lose sight of what that really means and what that really looks like. I think actually for those of us who've been following Jesus for the longest periods of time, it's easy to get complacent and do exactly that. It's easy for us to forget that there is a cost to following Jesus and to balk at having to pay it. It's easy for us to become frustrated or upset or confused when following Jesus leads to consequences we'd rather avoid, whether that's family who wants nothing to do with us or consequences at work, missed opportunities, neighbors avoiding us, whatever else. And it's easy to shy away from faithfulness to Christ to avoid those sorts of things from happening in the first place. Going back to the second counter, it's, it's easy to let good things creep into our lives and choke out the priority of our relationship with Jesus. It's easy to let good things take on an improper and undue place of priority in our lives such that our passion, devotion, and their clarity in following Jesus is obscured. And in the same way, it's easy for us to find ourselves with divided hearts. And it would be good today, I think, I hope, to ask yourselves if that's what we're doing, to spend some time reflecting on it, asking ourselves things like, has our, has our passion for Jesus cooled? Everyone and their new believer is generally pretty much on, on fire for Jesus. Where, where are we are now? Where are you at now? How's your, how's your devotional life looking? And to be clear, I'm not asking you, are you reading the Bible and are you reading it daily? You should. I'm taking that for granted. I'm asking you, why are you doing it? Why are you doing it? Are you doing it because you, you like the, the, the exercise, you like reading, you like the, the theology you gain for it, from it? Are you reading it because you, know, you should and it's a, it's a checkbox for you? 
Or are you doing it because you want to sit at the feet of your master and learn? And it's not the only motivation, right motivation for doing so, but I hope you get the point. How about our prayer life? Again, not asking how often you're praying. Paul says to pray always. We should do that. I'm asking, what do you pray for? If you weighed out your prayers, how much of this is material things? How much of this is deliverance from bad situations or problems? How often do we pray for sanctification, for growth and holiness? How often do we, how passionately, do we pray for opportunities to serve, to participate in the mission of our master? Speaking of, how often do we focus on that mission at all? Are we on fire for what Jesus is doing in the world? Do we see our salvation as something that is part of a bigger, glorious work that's happening right now? Do, do, do we see what God is doing as something that we're called to invest our time and money and tears to participate in? Or is our primary focus just our own personal lives? Now, I want to I end on that particular point and really drive this home because there is something I skipped over in these encounters. Going back to the second encounter, when Jesus approached that man, he said, follow me. Of course, as we said, the man said, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus' words were, let the dead bury the dead. But as for you, follow me. Except those weren't his words. He didn't say that. He said, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Notice the link between following Jesus then and the work of Jesus, proclaiming the kingdom. In the third encounter, we see a little more subtle but similar link. Jesus' response back to the guy there was, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. Put his hand to the plow doesn't sound like following language. That sounds like working language. That sounds like something you're doing. That sounds like participating in what Jesus is doing. Jesus twice links following him with working for him. And I think that's because following Jesus is very much tied to the mission of Jesus. Jesus is always on mission, and any follower of his ought to be too. I think it's fair to ask, are we? Are we? How big a priority is the spread of the gospel and the building up of Christ's body in our lives? Now, maybe a, a good way of figuring that out is to ask ourselves, if, you were, if we were honest with ourselves, do we put in as much to this body as we get out? Are we more of a consumer of what the church provides, or are we more of a contributor? Where does that, that balance fall in our lives? Are you more likely the person to complain that something is wrong, or the person to raise your hand and volunteer to fix it? Again, where does that balance in your life? And, and who knows, maybe, maybe it isn't passion for the mission that you struggle with, maybe it's, maybe it's something else. Which of these men's errors most resonate with you? And wherever that is, I would encourage you to spend some time today reflecting. And for those of you married, I'd encourage you to spend some time asking your spouse. They know you a lot better than you dare know yourself, I think, sometimes. Now, 
a lot of this sermon was hard. I get that. I totally get that. And I, I want to just end, brothers and sisters, with reminding us all that we follow a kind, gracious, forgiving, compassionate, and gloriously loving master. If there's any areas in our lives where we have gone astray, any area of our following Jesus where we have gone astray, big or small, we will be welcomed back with open arms. Any failures on our part are not deal breakers. Jesus doesn't kick us off the disciple train. Instead, he lovingly uses verses like these to guide us back behind him. There's a song, and I cannot remember for the life of me who sang it or what the title is, but there's a, there's a line that's always stuck out, and it's, my hope and my solace from this springs that he who lives to be my king once died to be my savior. We've got both in one. We serve a master who has high expectations because these are the right expectations. But that same master died, took our sins upon ourselves, himself, and he offers free grace to us as we follow him. So with that, let's, let's go to our God, let's ask him for our help, and let's, let's end our time this morning. Father, we thank you for the redemptive work of Jesus. We thank you for his substitutionary death on the cross. We thank you that we who believe in your son stand justified. We stand righteous before you on the account of his vicarious death and his perfect life credited to us. And as we approach texts like this that are hard, that are clearly telling us that the, the bar for how we should live our lives is clear, may we, may we not take from this anything legalistic, may we not take from this any sense of, of obligation that our salvation or position with you depends on our performance here. But Father, may we also not therefore neglect the call on our lives that you make. May we be a people who are wholeheartedly following your son, even as we are wholeheartedly trusting him when we fail. And Lord, just be glorified in our lives if there is any place where any of us, myself chief of all, need to take a hard look at our lives, need to repent. I pray that you would grant us grace to do exactly that that you would be magnified and lifted up and glorified in our zealous pursuit of Jesus. I ask you for these things, Father, in his name. Amen.